I want to invite you to take your Bibles for our Bible study this morning. And we're headed to Revelation chapter 22 as we get started. If you need notes, raise your hand. The ushers are going to move through the auditorium and they're going to give those to you. They are in the bulletin, but if you need some that aren't there, uh, then just raise your hand. They'll hand that to you so you can follow along a little bit better this morning. While they're taking care of that, let me ask you a serious question. If you had the opportunity this week, take your night. It's up to you. But you get the opportunity this week to be able to talk with somebody. Anybody that you would like would be invited to come to your house and have a meal with you. Anybody in the world that's alive today, who would that be? Who would you invite over? Now, some of you might invite a celebrity. Some of you might invite a politician. Somebody might invite some sports figure. Who would that be? Some of you might invite a distant relative or one of your family members you haven't seen for a long time. But whatever that is, let's expand it a little bit. If you could go back into history and you could pick any character of history, a human being that is, any character from history that you could have a meal with and you could sit down and talk with them, who would you choose? Your minds are going now. Who would it be? Would it be some famous historical character who worked in Europe or in the United States? Would it be some famous poet or author? Would it be somebody that you're looking and saying, oh, it would be a scriptural character? Or would it be your own family members who have passed away, parents, spouse, child, who is already with the Lord in glory? Whoever that is, you probably and I would have different peoples that we would say, I would choose this person, whether they're alive today or else, this would be the person, and it would be a privilege. It would be an honor to be able to sit down with that person. Let me give you a biblical truth. Jesus Christ has chosen somebody that he wants to have sup with. That's you. Do you remember where he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man open the door, I will what? I will come in and I will sup with him. You are important to Jesus Christ. You are so important to him that he wants fellowship with you. Now, it starts by being born again. It starts by asking Christ to become your Savior. And I'm not going to focus a whole lot on that area and explain it in depth this morning, so let me take a minute to do it right now. The idea of being born again is asking Christ to become your personal Savior. You and I are sinners. All of us are. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None of us, therefore, deserves to get into heaven or by our own merit or own good works. We can walk in and say, hey, I'm here. I've arrived. We're sinners. And God, of being of holy character, says, I cannot let sin into my presence. Your sin has to be removed, has to be taken care of, has to be blotted out. Well, it's not by your baptism or your church or your good works. And it's not by your money. It's not by your good looks or our ethnicity or our, our education. It's by the blood of Jesus Christ that takes away the sin. So God sent his only begotten son, Christ, to come to this earth who died to pay for your sin and my sin. And while he was on the cross, he made that payment to the point that he yells out at one point, tetelestai, or in our English we say, it is finished. It's paid in full. It has been paid in full. And then by the point, the fact that he resurrects on that third day, it shows that God has accepted his payment. Now the payment is there. The gift is there. You can be born again. You can have eternal life. However, it's not going to be forced upon you. You need to call upon him. You need to ask him to personally apply his payment to your account. How do you do that? Well, the Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You have to personally repent of your sin, ask him to apply his payment to your life, forgive you 
you of your sins and to give you eternal life. And he says if you do that, you're born again. Now that is a great privilege that God would come in and sup with you and me. That he would have fellowship with us. That he would have a, this opportune moment that he would say, I would like to, to forgive you and to talk with you and to spend time with you. But it gets better than that. As we go through this morning, think about how God is so good to us. One, he gives us a privilege of choosing to say, I want to have a meal with you. I want to have fellowship with you by offering us salvation. But not only that, he says, I want to, it gets better because it says in scriptures that one day he's going to come to take you to his house. To take you to his home. He says that I'm going to prepare a mansion. I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. He's going to invite you to his home. Now, I used to, growing up, I used to look forward to going to certain places. I really looked forward to going because it was a fun place, a great place. I looked forward to going to my grandparents' house. On weekends, we were able to be invited, if they invited us. If we weren't too bad the weekend before, we would get invited back. And now, to me, it was always a thrill to go to Grandma and Grandpa's house. They would let us do stuff that Mom and Dad wouldn't. They would let us eat stuff that Mom and Dad wouldn't let us eat. We would get away from our sister. That was probably the best part of the whole thing. We would go there, we'd be able to ride the cows, ride the bull. We'd be able to test out, is it true that cats always land on their feet when you throw them out of the hayloft? <laughs> we would do all these kind of goofy things. To be with grandma and grandpa, and it was fun, it was great. We looked forward to that. To be invited to a special place was such an honor. I remember I got invited to a meal one time when I was in college. I was applying to our church in Minneapolis, Berean Baptist, to become a preacher boy at this church. And that meant that I had to do a little bit of interviewing. So the chairman of the deacons told the pastor, I'll invite you, the guys over, and I'll do an interview. For me, I was extremely nervous. Mr. Murray and his wife were gracious, gracious people, but very wealthy people, very very, very classy people in a very good sense. Godly, godly, kind people. They had this huge house that they knew that she had, I mean, Mrs. Murray had etiquette just flowing from her. She could speak English the way it was supposed to be spoken. Now, you know I got a problem with that. You've heard me. So we go to her house, we walk in, and the table setting is like nothing I've ever seen in the movies I've never counted so much silverware around one plate before in my entire life. The china had like four knives and four forks and four spoons. And it's like, I only need one. I only need one. But then it was all laid out, all decked out. There was two napkins. What do you do with two napkins? I struggled with what you do with one. So you had this whole layout, and the Murrays were so gracious, so kind. They knew that I was absolutely out of my element. They were so kind. She taught me more etiquette in that one meal than I learned in my entire life. And I was so nervous and so scared, but they were so kind. Can you imagine being invited to heaven? To have a meal with Jesus Christ. How we're going to tremble, we're going to be nervous. It's going to be wonderful and beautiful, and he's going to make us feel at home. To be with Christ, to be invited into his house, what an honor. When I was here, back in 79, I was served in the church for a number of years, and then for two years in the middle 80s, I left and started another church. And I remember being down in that church, it still impressed me that when we were down there, there was one night that I was really praying and fasting I'd be invited to somebody's home. They were good friends of ours in the church, and it was Super Bowl evening. So we had the services, and I was praying, please, 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 Lord, have them invite us to their, our, to their home afterwards, because they had something we didn't have, a color TV. Get to go and watch the Super Bowl in color. Now, some of you are saying, you mean they used to not have color TV? That's true. It used to be black and white, and it used to be small. So we had one of those. As a young couple, we had one of those black and white TVs. Some of you remember they used to, you know, the ones that used to go and go to one of those, those um, showings of 
timeshare, and they give you one of those little TVs. That was our TV. You can't watch much of the Super Bowl, and I was hoping the Vikings, they, well, forget them. Uh, they weren't going to make it. But they had this, this family, they had this big TV. It was about this big. It was huge at that time. And it was color. And the praying and fasting paid off. They invited us. I was so thrilled to go there. Think of being invited to Christ's home where it's a fabulous meal, fabulous everything around. It is phenomenal. It is great. We've talked about this, a place of rejoicing and righteousness, reunions, a place where there is just, it is a remarkable climate, you know, better than what we're experiencing today climate-wise. It is just an unbelievable spot, but let's make it better. We not only have Christ offering to fellowship with us, we not only have Christ then improving upon that by saying, I'll invite you into my home. Let's take one step further. He says that when you come into my home, I'm going to do something that nobody has ever had in all of history. It's in Revelation chapter 22. It's in Revelation 22, jump down to verse 4. And they shall, do you have it there? Revelation 22 verse 4. They shall see something that has not been visible in history past. They shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. You realize that according to Exodus chapter 33, people have never seen God's face. In fact, when God was going to show to Moses, and Moses begged, let me see your face, God said, you can't. If you see my face, you'll die. It is so remarkable. So when I pass by, you'll only see the backside. We read in Paul's epistle to Timothy, he says that nobody has ever seen the face of God. And yet we read in this passage that it is predicted that one day in the future, we are going to see his face. We are going to see God's face. And he says as well in the book of Matthew, he says, blessed are those who are pure in heart for they shall see God as he is. That's going to be a privilege. That is going to be a thrill one day to see God's face. Now, what's that going to look like? The best I can give you is a passage of Scripture that describes what it was like to see God. It's found in the book of Ezekiel. you got to turn back there to Ezekiel. It's the most comprehensive vision of God that we have in the Bible. And it's Ezekiel who is getting this vision while he is in captivity in the city of Babylon after being taken from Jerusalem. He's 30 years of age, and God comes to him. And God shows him himself to a degree. It's limited. It's shaded, if you would. But he's going to be able to see a little bit of God. And he writes about what he sees when he sees God. It's in Ezekiel chapter 1 and it goes into chapter 2. So if you turn there and follow, I'm going to read this morning and I'm going to take the liberty of using a different translation, one that probably most of you aren't using. And rather than stick with just my King James this morning, I'm going to read this because it's more modern. It gives us a little bit more of a modern understanding in the sense and it might help you as you compare and think through the words by listening and comparing to what you have in your lap. And it's going to give us probably putting together all kinds of different translations. We can get a little bit better understanding of what he's looking at. In Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 4, as I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north. It's a tornado type thing, a whirlwind. And a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. You know what he's going to do? He's going to do something here that's really interesting. He's starting with this panoramic view, and it's kind of a wide-angle lens. It's one of those Hitchcock starts, where all of a sudden the movie starts, and you get this big panoramic picture of the whole city. And you get a feel of what's going on and where you're at, and then it comes in a little bit closer, and you see a little bit more, you get one city block. And then a little bit closer, you get one apartment building. Then a little bit closer, you get one apartment, and then you get right to the scene. 
And that's what he's going to do. He's going to take us all the way through this panorama of getting into, first of all, this huge storm, and then it kind of parts, and he's able to see into the heart of the storm. But when he sees into the heart of the storm, inside he sees this flashing forth, this fire flashing forth continually. Verse 5, And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness. But each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides, they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. And the four had the face of a lion on one on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. The four had the face of an eagle. There you have the blend of all the different heights of creation. The intelligence or smarts of a man. The strength of the ox. The superiority or the king of the jungle of the, of the uh, lion. The soaring, seeing all of this eagle. He goes on. Such were their faces and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies, and each went straight forward. Wheresoever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flashing of light. There you have warp speed, angelic creatures. Here they are, one on this side, that side, this side, this side. Their wings touching, moving about, going in every direction. Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures. One for each of the four of them. Corner a wheel, 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 wheel. And he goes on, as for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like gleaming barrel. And he goes on, the four had the same likeness, their appearance, construction, being as it were, a wheel within a wheel. Here's a gyroscope right here, a wheel and a wheel, a wheel and a wheel, a wheel and a wheel. Another one over here. He goes on, and when they went, they went in any of the four directions without turning as they went. And the rims were tall like a skyscraper. Awesome. The rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures, excuse me, page stuck. Here goes. When the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went. And the wheels rose along with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went. When these stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was a likeness of this huge space, this expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And there came a voice from above, the expanse over their heads. And when they stood still... They let down their wings. Above the expanse, over their heads, was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire. 
And seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow or rainbow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice of one speaking. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet. I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking unto me and he said, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. I send you to them. You shall say to them, and he gives them an entire message to preach to those people. Wow! Absolutely amazing what he sees that captures his attention. By the way, let's, let's put a little description here. What, what, what do we describe here? What do we say about this? Well, what we say is, Boy, what this tells us is God is hard to describe. Seeing God, it's, it's almost impossible to describe. Did you catch how many times like or as or in the form of? Why? How do you describe creatures that are indescribable? How do you describe things that are beyond description? Well, he's doing his very best. He's got this God who is just hard to describe. He's got a God that he's trying to give us an Im image of that is not like us. That's the second thought that strikes me is this God is not like us. You know how sometimes we talk about God? He's the man upstairs or he's, we picture this person who is an older gentleman rocking or we picture this doddering grandfather who's very concerned. He's got strength, you know, virility, but at the same time he's old, he's aged. That is not what's being pictured here. What people have as an idea. I was telling the other group this morning that there was a golfer years ago, his name was Tommy Bolt. Back in the 1900s, this golfer was world known for his golf stroke. That he was, they called it such a sweet stroke that he had. But he was also known for having such a temper that he would just explode when he would be playing if things didn't go right. And it talked about how one time when he was in a tournament, having a match, there he was, playing for money as a professional golfer, that he did his sweet putt. And the putt, the ball went and it rimmed out, didn't go in. He had to putt again. And again, six times before the ball went in. He was so mad, so irate. He threw that putter. He was screaming and yelling profanities. And then he spread his legs, shook his fists, and said, That's it, God. I've had enough of your games. You come down here and fight like a man. Hmm. Is God a man that we can fight with? Is God a bully of that sort? No. No, when you start going through this description and start thinking of what Ezekiel saw that God wanted him to see. And I mind you, he didn't see the fullness of God. No man has seen the fullness of God. He is seeing an, a visage of God, but it is limited. But it is profound. You know how when you're driving at night, and here we go, we head towards the west, what happens as you drive and the sun is setting? Oh man, you flip that visor down, you want to you get that sun so it's not in your eyes, or for many of you, you put on sunglasses. Because it's so brilliant, so bright. But it's kind of, kind of diffused the image a little bit so, so you can manage and you can see. Well, that's what Ezekiel has. A diffused image. But it's enough to give us just a glimpse of what God is like. And as we go through and see what God's like, it is obvious that what he wants us to understand, that God is above all. 
God is absolutely transcendent in the sense that he is above everything. That he is high above everything. The throne, the expanse, the angels are beneath that throne. He is able to lift up this idea that he's the central figure. The idea that his voice is the commanding voice. The idea that he is above these phenomenal skyscraper high building uh, peoples or beings that he can command them wherever the spirit says they go and they dart to and fro so quickly. He is above all. He is hard to describe, but he is amazing. He is not only above all, hard to describe. He is not only not like us, he is seen. And the point that he wants us to catch, he's all-powerful. He is all-powerful. Here are these strong creatures, this four-faced creature that has the best of all creation, the man, the lion, the oxen, the eagle. It pales in comparison to the one who is above it and more powerful. It does, its, it does the bidding of the superior's voice. This one who is all-powerful, seen in the fact that not only where he's majestic and not only where he is there, and, and Ezekiel says, boy, he is so brilliant and there's lights and there's fire going. This all-powerful one is shown even in the sense of the wheels that, that take his throne wherever it wants to go. Do you remember the wheels that he's described? He says that the wheel, there's a wheel and then there's a wheel within a wheel. It is like we said a gyroscope, and it's mammoth, and it's high. But do you remember what we read? What is surrounding the entirety of each of the wheels? The rim of the wheels are covered with eyes. Why is that? Not only does it show us something strange and abnormal. By the way, I've been tell, I told the other folk, I've been watching the last few weeks just periodic programs from National Geographic, Planet Earth, those types of things that come out, and where they go into different regions of the world, and they find these bugs these snakes, these flowers. And it's amazing the variety in creation, is it not? And they, how these different creatures are just so resilient and they adapt, whether they be a mouse or they be a reptile, things that we wouldn't want around us. But it's amazing. God has these amazing, amazing creatures around him. And it's describing, as Ezekiel describes, he says, it is phenomenal. And here these creatures are, but God is so powerful, he's got eyes all around the wheel. That'll catch your attention. Eyes in prophecy mean two things, one of two or both. And that is that God is highly intelligent. The eyes usually give insight. The idea of somebody who sees everything. So it's an awareness and an intelligence. And we all know God is highly intelligent, God knows us, sees us, knows everything about us. And again, we can go to New Testament verses. We can talk about what changed in our bodies even this morning. Those of us who took showers and washed our heads this morning, the number of hairs on our head changed. For some of us more than others. But God knows. God knows those little details. God knows what's happening in your life next week. God knows what your life is. He tarries what's going to be next year. He knows that if you make this decision, everything that happens, all the possibilities, or if you make that decision, all the possibilities. There's no surprises with God. He knows everything. He sees everything. He is all-powerful. And Ezekiel is just trying to give us an idea that as he sees this being, this God upon the throne, he is saying he is majestic, he is powerful, all-powerful. The tornado, the clouds, the, the voices that are speaking, that, the sound of many waters, the voice from above the throne, that all of a sudden it sounds like a host speaking, but it's one, it's God. This God is described in this passage as being amazing. Let me give you something else. God is holy. God is holy. 
Holy in the sense that he is trying to point out God is filled with this flaming, this fire, that which gets rid of all impurities, pure righteousness, pure holiness. Purity beyond our wildest dreams. We think of that freshly fallen snow, how pure it is. It pales in comparison to the holiness of God. This God who is so majestic, so mighty, so amazing, so wonderful, he's describing him as holy. But then he describes him as well. As he's giving us this picture, he's saying, this God is gracious. He is gracious. How do I know that? Well, let me throw several things to you. This person who is on this throne, who the beings are really ready to go at warp speed wherever he says. He can move about. He can see at the Spirit's whim or wish. He says this very being would even talk to Ezekiel. When Ezekiel falls flat before him, he says, get up, I'm going to give you strength. And the Spirit strengthens him. I'm going to send you to the rebellious people of Israel. That God in his grace would communicate, would help even the Israelites after all that they have done. This God who is there is pictured with a rainbow surrounding him. Well, as soon as you think of rainbow in Scripture, what story does it take it back to? It's got to take you all the way back to Noah, does it not? Where God has given a promise to be merciful and never send another flood upon the earth, this God of mercy. That his throne, it just radiates mercy. It radiates holiness. It radiates majesty. Oh my, what a phenomenal image that Ezekiel is saying. An image that just strikes him. You know, by the way, Ezekiel sees us not once, but he sees the glory of the Lord on several occasions. You can look it up later, but what it has, he sees it in chapter 3, verse 22 and following. He sees the same visage of this glory of God, this chariot of God in chapter 8, verse 4 and following. He sees it again in chapter 43 and following. Do you know something? Every time he sees it, it's the same, which says this, God is unchanging. This God of the Old Testament picture, he doesn't change. He doesn't fade. He doesn't, he doesn't all of a sudden lose his glistening because of age or the sun. In fact, he will have such glory and majesty and brightness and brilliance that he will light up the entire new heaven and new earth. We have no need of the sun. And we're going to see his face. We're going to see this very person that nobody has ever seen in history past and survived. He says that when we get to heaven, when we are there, he is going to give us the honor not only to have fellowship with him in this life, not only to enter into his home, but to see him face to face to have fellowship with him. Why, when Ezekiel saw this, Ezekiel was so dumbfounded, Ezekiel fell flat on his feet. Do you remember the silly movie, The Wizard of Oz? Do you remember? Now, that's all fictional. And I'm not trying to be irreverent, but do you remember how they first come to Emerald City? And when they come, they see this beautiful city, and these, these you know, Woods characters and Dorothy and Toto, they're impressed. Everything is impressive. And as we go through the story of their first visit to the Emerald City, everything gets bigger and brighter and better. The horse of many colors, all these different, all leading up to this time when they're going to meet the wizard. Finally, they're allowed, after they've done the preparations, remember the big hall opens. They go down this long hallway. The cowardly lion is shaking, falls. They have to pick him up. They are terrified, but they're on a mission. And when they get there, all of a sudden, there's the smoke and the billowing, and the great Oz has spoken. Do you remember all that? And he's a fake. He's a fraud. But up to that moment, they are so terrified that when he says, go, get the witch's broom, cowardly lion does what? He turns, he runs down the hallway and leaps out the window. 
They are terrified by a con artist. When we see God, we are going to be so shell-shocked, so amazed by His glory, His brilliance. It's going to be an amazing moment. I was telling the other group, the Tim Russert, do you ever remember him, some of you? He used to be a news reporter. Tim Russert used to work for NBC. He says that one of his most important, famous interviews was with Pope John Paul II. Okay, I understand there's different theology, and I understand where he's coming from, that in his religious faith, he believed that Pope John Paul was Christ in the flesh here on earth. And we understand that that's not biblically true, but that was of his faith. So when Tim Russert was planning this meeting, he was nervous, going to be able to meet his church leader. And then he got more and more nervous as the time approached, but he knew that what he had in mind was a mission. When I see Pope John Paul, it's all about my job. I'm going to ask him to come and do an interview with me. I'm going to ask him to come to NBC, and we're going to get this classic report. It's going to help my career. It's going to be phenomenal. And he talked about how the day arrived. He was so nervous, so scared to meet the pontiff. He goes to the holy city. He is approaching even the papal quarters, and he says the more he got walking down the hallway, the more nervous he got. He's going to meet the pope. He's going to meet the pope. And he says, finally, I enter the room, and everybody else departs, and I'm in the papal office. And he says, it's just me and the pope. He says, while I stood there, I was so impressed by the person and what he believed this person to be, he said, I became shell-shocked. I couldn't speak. Finally, the Pope says to him, he says, Mr. Russert, I understand you're an important man. He said, I couldn't answer. My, my request for the interview, my, my request for NBC, I couldn't even think about it. It all just paled. It went away. He says, I, I started speaking, and I stammered, and I stuttered, and finally the only words I could get out of my mouth was, there's only two people in this room, one who's important, and me. I'm a nobody. The Pope laughed, and he said, well, what is it that you want from me? He said, I couldn't remember my job. I was so impressed and profoundly, he says, all I could say was, bless me. He said, I walked out. My boss asked me, did he get the interview? No. What did he say? I forgot to ask him. You know, when we see Christ, we get so worried about heaven. And we're so concerned, and rightfully so. We are so concerned about what kind of a house. And we, he gives us some information. What kind of food? What are we going to do? You and I forget that the best part of heaven is we shall see him face to face. God is the best part of heaven. God is heaven. We need to have God as part of this equation of talking about heaven. It would be like a bride going on a honeymoon without her husband if we have a heaven without a God. This God is the, is the epitome of heaven. And when we see him, we are going to forget a lot of the things that are of real concern to us right now. We will be so taken in by his greatness, his wonder, his majesty, his mercy, his kindness. Mercy that even speaks to an Ezekiel. Mercy that invites us to be able to see him face to face. Can we make it better yet? You think this is great? Let's, let's add something to it. Not only does he want fellowship with us now, not only does he invite us to his heaven in the future, not only will he let us see him face to face, but let's add. What the Bible says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. And we shall live with him forever and ever. He invites us to stay with him forever. You know how you do certain things that you wish they didn't end? 
You go on vacation. It's a wonderful vacation. But the problem is, you got to come, come back home to reality. Oh, it's, it's a phenomenal thing. Here, here, here's what you're thinking. What I'm thinking right now. This weather is amazing. But we're all thinking this. Those 36 inches are coming soon. <laughs> it's going to stop. Because in our mind, the great things don't, they don't last. There's an end to them. We, we go and we get on those Hershey rides and we do the extreme rides and they're fun and they're a thrill. But thank God they end. Okay. But some would keep it going. Some would keep on going as best they can. We go, yeah, let's, let's go and let's do some scuba dive. Oh, we see such phenomenal things. But they end. Let's do an extreme sport. But it ends. Let's do, let's do some parasailing. But it ends. And we get thrilled with all those things. May I, may I throw something to you that, that it just, it's a profound thought. Scriptures unveils for us that when we see God, it is going to be our most satisfying moment of our existence. David writes it about this way. He says, one thing I desire, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever and behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. Asaph wrote, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is none upon the earth that I desire more than you. We get satisfied with a good meal like at Shady Maple. We get satisfied with a restful night on my pillow. We get thrilled with a raise, a promotion, a vacation, an event in our kids' lives. They win the championship. Whoa! They don't last. And they are fun and they are thrilling. But nothing, nothing, nothing will satisfy our spirit and our soul more than when we see God and are invited to live with him forever and ever. Every desire of our heart, every imagination of our soul, we will be fully satisfied. That's why Jesus says, man doesn't live by bread alone. By the word of God, we're going to see the word of God. He's going to invite us to live with him. And we will be so thrilled. Um, let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Several months ago, we went on vacation. We went down to Williamsburg. Yes. And when we did, I told you that we did some, some ropes course with, the, with Tony's family. And I told you about the ropes course that we went on these wires and the harnesses and we're up in the trees, probably about the level of those tops of those windows up in the trees going from platform to platform. And Eden being three, she has no idea what it's like to fall out of a tree. So she was going easy peasy, easy peasy, easy peasy, but her dad was holding her. So Preston six has a little bit more of a consciousness of what's going on. And we went through this and each obstacle builds more challenging, more challenging, more challenging. One of the obstacles we went to, on the, we decided to, instead of doing the easy course twice, we'd move up to the next course, and all there was was a single wire that was like your three-quarters wire, a metal wire that was there. And yes, there's a wire up here where your harness is, but you're supposed to walk the 25 feet across and maybe just kind of hold. And you know how when you're going on a wire that's kind of suspended, the wire doesn't hold exactly, it does one of these? You know, it goes back and forth, okay? And so you're doing this thing, and it was challenging. It was scary, especially for old people. And uh, so going across, now increase the challenge and the fear for a six-year-old who can't touch this high where the wire is overwards. So it was, he had to go. 
or they would lower him to the ground. So he got out really far, about one foot. There's only like 24 more to go. And he froze. And everybody's encouraging the people on the ground, the people above, go, he says, Mommy, I can't move. I can't move. I'm scared. Okay, honey. Do you want them to lower you down? No. <laughs> do you ever have those moments? You're going to do it, but you don't want to do it? You've never had that? Okay, here he is. He's there. And so he turned to Mommy and said, Mommy, you got to do something. What's that? You need to pray. You need to pray that I get bold. So, so they had a word of prayer together. People on the ground, what in the world? <laughs> they prayed. And then with more coaxing, he finally got across. Now, when he got across, you know what he said? He didn't say easy peasy. But he said, oh, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> do you want to do it again? No, but it wasn't so bad. <laughs> we are going to have one of those moments where we, when we see God, where we are going to be on this wire. We are going to go, this is scary. Reverently scary. Because we will know who we are. How great he is. He will be so amazing to us. He will consume our minds, our hearts, our beings. We will want to be there. And at the same moment, what does everybody who sees a visage of God in Scripture, what do they do? Every time, they fall down as if they are so overwhelmed by God. We will be so overwhelmed, and yet, he says, we shall see his face, and we shall live with him. Something changes for us. Something changes different than what we experience in this life where we will be able to continue this looking, continue this fellowship with him, and it will not strike us down. It will not kill us. It will not cause us to turn away. We will be awestruck. We will be thrilled. I will forget about all my concerns about my house and my job in heaven because I'm going to be focused on God. Now, is those, are those other things good? Yes, he shares them with us. They're his gifts. But he is the real great thing of heaven. That we get to spend time with him. That we are focused on him. Should we make it even better? Take your Bibles and go to the Gospel of Luke. And let's make it even a step better than all that. Go to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. And watch how it gets even better in heaven. That is more amazing, more thrilling more exciting. Luke chapter 12. Jesus is telling in this, in this section of scripture about getting ready for his return. Being ready for when he comes back. Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12 he says this. He says in verse 35. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. And you yourselves. It's the idea that I could be coming back. Keep the lamp going. You know, uh, keep, keep ready for when I come back. Like a wedding. Like the ten virgins we talked about in Sunday school this morning. That they had to keep their, their lamps ready to go for when the parade came of the wedding. The Lord's return. And you yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding. And that when he comes and knocks they may open unto him immediately. The master's home. The master's home. We're ready for the master's return. Watch what he says. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he comes, shall find doing what? They're watching. Verily, truly I say unto you, that he shall gird who? Himself, and make them to sit down to meet, and he will come forth and serve them. Should we make it one step better? Not only will we live with him forever, 
but God will even serve us to a degree. You know why he does that? Because you are precious to him. Because he is commending you. He is putting out his favor to you. I, I was sharing before that I had that opportunity. Many of you know I went to the Philippines a number of years ago and I preached for 17 days, some 20 times in that period of time, to a, mission, to a conference. In the course of the preaching, I made a comment that my favorite dish, and it was the idea of, you know, we, we need to, to crave something, that my favorite dish of food at that time was liver, calf liver smothered with onions. Doesn't that sound wonderful? And then a whole big order of french fries and a malt, a chocolate malt. Doesn't that make your arteries just want to rebel right at this moment with the cholesterol? And I said, that is, a, that is the world's best meal, okay? And so I made that comment. They, the last night there, one of the host churches invited us over, and they said, we have a special meal for you. That special meal was a liver, okay, that they, they, they usually didn't cook the liver in this one area, they just put it on, they, they baked it. They didn't fry it or anything, they just had the whole liver. The onions were cut up like, um, like pineapples, sit on there, and they brought that and they had what they had for french fries. And they put that there and then they put a big raw fish in front of us and they say, you can pick which one you want to eat. The missionary said, you're gonna die if you eat that liver, you're gonna die, you're gonna die. You don't eat the liver. But I felt so humbled that they would do that. I felt so honored, and not in a proud sense, but so honored that they would do that special meal for me. It was an honor, but a, but a humbling moment. Oh, by the way, Deb and I ate the liver. It was the best liver we ever ate. The missionary ate the raw fish. They all got sick. <laughs> <laughs> but they served me. Who am I that they would go and kill an animal that morning to serve me. They, it was an honor, but it was very humbling. When Jesus serves us, it is an honor, but humbling. How will you feel that he is saying to others, this is my servant. I'm proud of them. I want to show you how proud, I'm going to serve them. I'm going to do a special dish for them. He invites us to have fellowship. He invites us to his home. He says we're going to see him face to face. Then he says, live with me forever. And then he serves us. Amazing grace of God. This is the God you have sat here this morning to worship. This is the hope he gives you for the future. With all that in mind, how can you not respond from your heart? If you have an ounce, an ounce of spiritual growth in your life, if you have a, just, a, just a small amount of spiritual concern, how can you not, from the depths of your heart, respond by saying, thank you, God. You see, what's going to happen, if you take your Bibles and join me with you as we close, is something's going to happen in the future. When we see God, when we are invited to stay there, when he serves us, we're going to start just breaking out in worship. Go, to, go with me to Revelations, the, the last, the end of the book. And then we're going to work our way forward. Revelation 19. Watch the response of those in heaven. It's giving us a, a preview of what we're going to do when we see all this, when we experience this, when we see him in his greatness, when he serves us. What are we going to do? Look at Revelation 19. He says in verse 1, After these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Oh, this is cool. Ah, what's next? 
Well, is there anything else for me to do? I'm kind of bored. Uh-uh, uh-uh. What do they say? They say, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged this great whore. Go down a little bit, because he's, he's finally putting the end of evil. They are excited. Jump down to verse 4. The four and twenty elders, the four beasts fall down, worship God that sat on the throne. They call out, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you that fear him, both small and great. And I heard heard as it were the voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters as the voice of mighty thunderings saying alleluia for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth go back go back to chapter 7 chapter 7 we get another little image of people in heaven and what they're going to do revelation 7 down to verse 9 after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations, kindreds, people, tongues, stood before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, palms in their hands. Chapter 7, verse 10, they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sits upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. Go back a little bit to chapter 5. Towards chapter 5. And in the middle of chapter 5, verse 9, it's talking about those in heaven who fall down before him and they sang a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. You have made us unto our God, kings and priests. We shall reign on the earth. Jump down a couple more verses. Down to verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb which was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth he says and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever and the four beasts said amen the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that lives forever and ever. The idea is he's going to give us opportunity to praise. He's going to invite us to praise. And he's going to accept our praise. He wants us to worship. How can we not do that today?